Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Rational Face Podcast, the best podcast on the blabbernacle. I'm actually not sure if I've said that in a while on the last episodes, but you are here. This is another installment of the Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist series with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, Laurel, and myself. Jennifer and Laurel, hello. How are you doing? And welcome to the podcast. Hi, Brian. All right. So uh, we have two questions. Um, and I, I guess the theme of this episode, as we've discussed, is going to be on eroticism. And before we get into that, Jennifer, do you have any announcements about workshops or classes that are coming up? Uh, well, first, I have a cold, so I sound like an imposter on the podcast, but it is me. <laughs> and um, so, um, well, I am starting to put together the schedule for next year, and I've decided I'm going to try and do more live workshops because... They seem to be pretty high impact for people and valuable. And so I'm, I'd like to do more of them. So we are um, planning to be in Logan, Utah in January in, um, I think it's Gilbert, Arizona, in near Mesa in um, February. I will be outside of Chicago in March. And then I think I'm going to be doing a three-day women's uh, retreat where you actually have, you know, you can stay at the place in Oregon either in the spring or in the fall. And I haven't yet decided on the dates. But if you uh, want to know more about these live workshops, you can find out about them on my events page on my website. And we aren't putting the tickets on sale yet because they sell out very quickly. And uh, so we will, if you want to be the first to know you should get onto my email list, which you can do on my website, and then you'll get notification ahead of of um, any advertising that happens, and they'll probably go on sale a couple months before each workshop. So, yeah. Cool. All right. So a couple workshops throughout the next almost a year, next, I don't know, six to nine months or so. And for those that are interested, get on the website. Uh, see which one you want to go to and get on the email list to be alerted to when the tickets go on sale, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, well, I don't know if there's anything else that we need to talk about before we get into the questions. I think that's it. So like I said, we have two questions kind of focusing on eroticism. One is more of a relationship question and one is kind of a parenting question. And so we'll start with the first one that is more of the relationship question, and I will read it. This is from a a female questioner, uh, coming from a female perspective, and I will read this one. Hi, I've been listening to your podcast, and I have a question. I've been married to my husband for 15 years. He has more sexual desire than I do, but overall I wouldn't say that I have low desire. Most of the time I can make myself available to him when he asks. However, I have great difficulty enjoying sex or achieving orgasm if there isn't dirty talk. I need to feel degraded and be called degrading things to orgasm, and I can only orgasm in the missionary position. My husband and I have a healthy relationship, and he is very respectful toward me. He has never degraded me or treated me badly. I feel sinful for using such language during sex, but I want to enjoy it. I would really love to be able to orgasm without dirty talk, as I feel more intimate and close to my husband when we don't. However, I don't remember the last time I could reach orgasm without it. Is this something that I can eventually change? Am I being sinful? 
Okay, good. So um, this is a really good question. And it's a very, you know, uh, th this woman is asking, is she sinful? Because I think, you know, it feels so incongruent with how we are taught we should think and feel around sexuality. Um, I think we often feel like it has to be lofty and spiritual in order for it to be legitimate or good. And um, the reality is, is that probably many women, if not most women, would not be able to have sexual pleasure if they weren't putting, creating some kind of a dynamic of degradation. And I know that sounds sort of uh, surprising, if not alarming to many of us, but what I would say is that, first of all, one of the reasons why I think we are uncomfortable with sexuality in general is because of eroticism. And let me just sort of define what that is, is that eroticism is um, when we create, it's the meanings that we create that make us desire sexually. And human beings, as I've probably said on other podcasts, have this unique capacity to create meaning around their sexuality. And often it's, you know, the meanings that we create will determine whether or not sex is desirable for us or undesirable. And the other thing is that our erotic maps or our erotic templates, that is to say the kinds of meanings that we are drawn to get forged at a very young age and they get forged in a relational context. This erotic template or the basic meaning frame of our sexuality, it starts to develop between the ages of four and seven. And that can continue to evolve and expand, as I'll talk about. But we are often drawing on the relational world that we live in. The reality is that when you grow up in a world uh, that is patriarchal or that you have a sense of male-female relationships as being in a basic hierarchy, that even if we don't even understand that idea or that language, on some level, we understand it when we're younger, that that is why many of us will create eroticism around hierarchy. Okay, so that that's one idea. Um, and so, um, you know, that's often when people are like, you know, one of my clients said to me, my feminist self is not at all proud of my fantasies, okay? That is that our minds are kind of drawing on relational realities that we know even though we would never want them in the light of day, even though our lives may not in any way replicate those ideas. And so um, one of the other basic forces on us psychologically is that we live in a context or if we've grown up in the church, uh, you don't even have to grow up in the church. There's a basic angst about sexuality and sexuality is kind of forbidden, okay, especially for women. And so women in particular, and men can do this in their own way, which I'll speak to in a second, but women in particular are often, well, let me back up a little bit from that. Michael Bader, he's a psychoanalyst who did quite a bit of writing about eroticism. And one of the things that he says is that when people create sexual meanings in their minds, or they create meanings that turn them on sexually. He says that we are looking for a way to give ourselves permission to have pleasure, that some way in which we're making it more acceptable to ourselves. 
And so if as a woman, you've grown up believing that you aren't supposed to be sexual, you're not supposed to want sex. Okay. If you have a fantasy in which you're being dominated or raped or, you know, that you aren't, you're being forced to have pleasure, right? You don't have to acknowledge or admit that this is something that you want. Now, always in the fantasy, you really do want it, okay? Secretly, you want it. You're not actually, I mean, on some level inside, as one other theorist talks about, the woman in the fantasy has the power. I think Esther Perel talks about this. The woman has the power because she actually wants what's happening, but she can hide in the idea that she somehow doesn't want it, and the other person is fully taking responsibility for the pleasure she's getting. And so this is not a atypical way for people to give themselves permission to have pleasure is when it's being forced upon them, okay? Or um, when they're playing out the dynamics of dominance and submission, right? Which is this person is talking about in the sort of degradation is that you are bad, you are shameful, you are, you know, unworthy in some way that we can eroticize those meanings that are in the culture, even if they distress us. And so I guess what I would say is that if you have found a way to have pleasure and to be able to be sexual, I, I guess what I would say is I don't want to pathologize that. I would say that's good because having pleasure and being sexual are good things. They're valuable things to have in our lives as long as they aren't harmful to us or anyone else. And we are living within our commitments and our beliefs. Um, what I might say is that, you know, you know, oftentimes what happens is we can become distressed by the meaning frames in which we find pleasure and then in some ways not expand them or develop the ways that we can find pleasure of other ways to find pleasure, expand that repertoire. Um, the other, so, so that is to say sometimes, you know, I remember having someone ask me a question about the fact that she thought she was asexual. And when I asked her more questions about it, what, what was in fact true is that she had, at a very early age, had sort of sadomasochistic fantasies. That is to say fantasies around dominance and submission. And they were so distressing for her as a young person because she didn't like the idea of being drawn to uh, fantasies in which one is being harmed or one is harming, which certainly makes sense to me that that was distressing for her. But the way what she ended up doing at a very young age is becoming anti-sexual, which is different than asexual. It's kind of, you know, pressing it down and saying, I don't want to be a part of it. And that's what many of us do is because we are anxious about our eroticism, we will often distance from it or not really develop it, not be accepting enough of the quirkiness of our erotic minds or even what is happening in our erotic minds to see if we can in fact expand and perhaps create meaning frames that we find more congruous or more comfortable for us are more in line with what we feel good about. Now, one of the things I would say is that, um, you know, the more you develop, again, I'm not pathologizing themes of dominance and submission if they aren't distressing for you. 
you know, if you can accept this aspect of our sexuality and our eroticism. What I think is also true is that if you become more accepting, truly accepting of your sexuality, of your sexual self, um, if you're more willing to really embrace and tolerate your erotic nature as a woman or as a man, um, the less you may need those kinds of meaning frames to feel legitimately sexual. The more that you can claim your sexuality in the here and now. And I don't think the way to get from I need degrading talk to I can really feel erotic in the present moment is not by shaming that you may want degrading talk, but to be accepting of the way in which you have found a way to have pleasure and just see if you can expand and try on other ideas and other meaning frames in which to create it. Um, I think that, um, just to say a little more about this, I've also gotten questions around, you know, if someone was raped or sexually assaulted, that it can feel distressing for them that there is this replay in their erotic minds of a kind of antisocial or degrading experience or a rape fantasy of the very thing that caused them so much pain. And again, I would say that it's not that this person wants to be raped. It's not that this person found the rape pleasurable. And it's not like they're trying to recreate something. Other theorists talk about they're trying to find a way to get control of it. or to Because in the fantasy, you have more power. It's a way to access sexual pleasure. It's a way to access eroticism in a frame that you know. And so I credit it for the fact that it's a way of allowing yourself to have sexual pleasure. And again, I see that as a good thing. Um, but can I also expand and find other meaning frames that are meaningful to me? So what, what are you guys' thoughts around this? I know this is a little bit hard for some people because eroticism can feel dark for many of us. Well, I just had one thought. Um, it just reminded me of... Uh, Oh, something I heard in, I, I think, a dance class uh, or a dance or an acting class. Um, so I'll have to give a little background on this. In acting, um, you you often have what are called isms. And these are little characteristics when whenever you're acting as different characters that you frequently do. Like maybe you lick your lips a lot or something mm -hmm. or the way you walk that is consistent no matter what character you're doing. And they call that an ism. Mm -hmm. And usually you're told like, oh, be careful of your isms. Be careful of your isms. And I had one teacher that said, no, you need to go further into your isms. Mm. Um, instead of avoiding them and trying to chop them off because it's not matching how things are, you think they're supposed to look, um, mm. you need to go deeper into them to figure out where they're coming from and what you can use there um, yes. so that you can actually control it better. But you have, you have to go deeper into it first. Yeah, I think that's a valuable idea. I actually think that people whose eroticism doesn't kind of go off the rails are actually people who are more able to accept and work with and even play with their silly erotic ideas and not be too distressed by them. I actually think what sometimes happens is that we can be so distressed by our eroticism and challenges, and I think this is in the second question, of being too shaming of pornography or sexuality is that you then create a deep allure 
because you don't allow the space for it to be integrated. And so, you know, for example, somebody wrote me a question recently, and I've had clients with this challenge where, you know, the, the, the husband is wearing women's underwear and they find out the husband's been hiding this and it's, it's very, can be very distressing. Does it mean my husband's gay? Does it mean, you know, and oftentimes these are not people that are even close to gay. They're oftentimes very hyper-masculine people. They, they occupy hyper-masculine jobs. They are often stoic. They often feel no emotion, or, or I should say they express or, or seem to have integrated very little emotion and feeling. And they uh, then have sort of eroticized it and kind of look for ways to, um, to kind of sexualize the feminine. The, the thing that can be really challenging about it is in some ways, what I think is hard is not just that, that one spouse seems to have eroticized something that the other spouse does not find sexual or, in, or engaging or, or titillating, that sometimes that it feels so unintegrated with their life that because they've been so shaming of it, it's taken on a life of its own that oftentimes, maybe paradoxically, the more we can kind of accept our, the silliness of the erotic mind and not be too distressed by it, the more you can play with it and find other ideas. Uh, and I think sometimes the more distressed you are by it, the more power or you shut sexuality down. So again, what thoughts do you have when I say all that? It's, just, it's, just, it's a weird experience. And I think uh, a lot of Mormons experience it, and and, and my wife and I did, uh, getting married, never having had sex before, and then suddenly you're plunged into this world, and never having watched like R-rated movies or seen a sex scene or anything. And mm -hmm. so it's hard to make that shift because um, yes. our normal life is really quite different. It's almost like our sex life is an alternate reality because that's right you know that some of the issues that a lot of people have is being a good mother being even a wife yes. is not is not the same person that's being a good lover sexual. and being a father is not the same as being a sexual lover and so just in that aspect it's disorienting and this is just uh i guess a little further on the spectrum of uh that's right deviant not deviant is not the right word um, but it can feel that way, it, right? It can yes. feel deviant. It's just so different uh, from who they are as a person yes. in everyday life. Yes, and I think you know sometimes when I sit in church, I think I I can feel like even unspoken, we have a very kind of anti-pleasure um, and anti-self themes, the theme that kind of exists in the way we talk about goodness and, you know, not an integration of self and pleasure for the doing of good. We, we tend to be more self-denying, anxious about desire and pleasure, seeing desire and pleasure as taking us closer, you know, to, to evil. And so I think that that is a kind of underlying framework that makes it really hard to accept our humanity and to really accept our sexual nature. Again, the question that I'm always, you know, asking my clients to consider and think about is what am I creating 
is this creating something bad in me to have pleasure in this way and to create this meaning? You know, does, does it create something bad between my husband and I? You know, does it create something bad inside of me? Does it, you know, can I be accepting of it? And, um, or is there something about it that I really don't feel okay with? I mean, I do think that we can decide that there's certain um, places that we don't want our eroticism to go, of course, and that we could imagine we could go there, but we choose not to. I think that's perfectly okay as well to say, you know, I probably could think of someone else, but I'm not going to do that. You know, for example, uh, you can make decisions around what you want to foster in your mind and what you want to create. Um, I think as long as it's not shame driven, but uh, choice driven and about, you know, encouraging eroticism that you feel good about and that creates goodness in you and in your relationship. Yeah, I thought about how, you know, like, especially in, in church where it's like you have all these separate identities and they're all supposed to act a certain way, um, as opposed to being being able to put them all together as one thing, like your your church, you know, your church presentational self and then um, the self at home and then the self in the bedroom and um, that we sometimes have a hard time, you know, recognizing that's all the same being, Um Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think especially as women, it's um, yeah, and this kind of a little bit sort of ties into the next question that talks about media. Um, but I just notice it's like especially in media, even LDS media, there are certain characters that are allowed to be sexual and others are not allowed to be sexual. Um, mm-hmm. We think it's weird or gross if they're sexual. For women, it's like you are young and hot; you are allowed to be sexual. Um, mm-hmm. And other characters that mm. then we get, then we get weird. Like, wait, can they? They're a mom. Ew, is that okay? Mm. Um, and uh, yes, that's and right. Without realizing, but that's you know those things can exist together. Yeah, because I, it would be very interesting if we really truly lived in a society, you know, a larger society, and even in our LDS culture, we're more truly sex positive. Okay truly embracing of the body and of our sexual nature, I bet our eroticism would be healthier and would feel less distressing to us, actually. Um, There's research that shows if they look at the fantasies, uh, this is somebody, um, I can't think of the author's name, but she wrote a book on um, surveying the erotic fantasies of a large group of women. And what was really interesting was that the more healthy the relational and sexual environment had been that the person had grown up in, the healthier and more relational the sexual fantasies were. The more traumatic and unhealthy, the more distressing the fantasies were, right? So if we truly were in a more relationally positive, loving environments in which sexuality and our sexual nature was more accepted, we would create more here and now fantasies. We would be more able to do it, that we have, we would embrace the eroticism that's in life all around us. The things that spark our sense of aliveness and spark our sense of interest and spark our sense of wonder in our relationships, in the world, in the beauty of nature. I mean, there's so much erotic energy in life in the most positive forms, 
But when we have taught ourselves to turn it off and to shut ourselves down from it and to kind of live in perfectionistic robotic frames, we don't access it. You know, I remember once uh, one of the discussions we had on this podcast, uh, Brian, I, can't, I don't know if you were on this call, Laurel, I don't think you were. We talked about that research that was done that women were bodies were responding to all kinds of stimuli in the environment, actually much more than men were. But in terms of what was actually experienced as desire, women were actually reporting the experience of desire at a much lower rate, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And there's a lot of different ways to think about that. But what I think one of the interpretations that's a fair and meaningful one is that women have are kind of earthy erotic creatures by our very nature. We're emotive and sensitive. This is a kind of our, really that sort of the heritage of women is that we are earthy and erotic, right? Maybe that's why we're being told all the time we're not sexual. And that, you know, in fact, we have learned to shut ourselves off from this part of ourselves because we're afraid of our eroticism. We're afraid of our sexual natures. But I do really think the healthier our culture and environment is, the more we can create pro-social love context meanings around sexual desire. I would really love for us to create a more, I mean, we have the theology to do it, to create a truly more embracing um, notions around our sexuality and the body and pleasure, and to use all that for the sake of doing and creating goodness in our lives. So that's my wish. Okay. Well, maybe we can get you to write a book that Deseret Book will publish, and then we can solve all <laughs> yeah. that with a publication. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Okay. Well, um, let's go on to the second question. And Laurel, if you could read that one. So here's our second question. Keeping my family safe from the harmful effects of porn is really important to me. I'm appalled at the way sex and intimacy are often portrayed in the media and want to prevent my children and myself from thinking that that is normal. However, I don't want to only teach them what sex isn't and what they should stay away from because that just leaves a negative space and they will want to know what sex is. So how can I teach them about sex in a way that aligns with my spiritual values but is not just a negative view of what to avoid, but a positive view of what to embrace? For me, it's not just about avoiding porn, but giving my children a different way to frame sex altogether that is deep enough that they can understand how shallow media and porn is in the portrayal of intimacy. Okay, great question. Um, yeah, so this actually this leads really nicely from the last question, which is like, how do we do a better job? How do we really create something different that's not fear-based, not so shaming, and create a real vision of what it is that we want our children to reach towards or to create. I think that there's a lot of factors of how we teach this to our kids, and I'll speak specifically to porn in a minute. But I think that you know the, the, the most wonderful thing you can do for your children, if you're able to create this in your life, is to have a loving, positive sexual relationship with your spouse. You know, having that, and not that your kids are privy to the specifics of that, but just for your children to feel that their parents enjoy sexuality, that their parents like each other, that their parents are not afraid of their sexual natures, even if they are private about it, that that's very good for kids because kids map the minds of their parents 
at a very young age, they and they even map their parents' sexual interest in their spouse or, or in others, if it's, that so be the case, because uh, you know kids can do that. And so if they see and can feel a kind of healthy, positive uh, reality around grown-up sexuality, it gives them unwittingly, they don't even have to have it articulated, it gives them a healthy frame to reach towards. You know, outside of what you've actually created in your own life, talking to kids about sexuality and their sexual natures and truly acting as if you believe it's true, that you see it as a good part of being human, that you see it as a blessing, like it, it really is a gift to be sexual and to really give our kids the message that how you relate to your sexuality, you know, what I what I think is really important to say is that your sexuality is a gift. It's a wonderful part of being human. It at least has the potential to be a wonderful part of your human experience. And how you relate to your sexuality as you grow up and how you relate to a spouse down the road is really, really important. Relating to your own sexuality with a sense of love and self-acceptance and a sense of stewardship over this gift and relating to another person out of love and respect and a kind of stewardship in that relationship is also very important. And so uh, so giving them a vision that, that loving through the body is a, is a fundamental part of being human and a really wonderful part of being human. Um, it's also a powerful way of being in relationship to others and so how you are in relationship to others through your sexuality and to yourself really matters. And, and respect has to be sort of the fundamental anchor in all of that. Um, I would also then say to my kids that there are um, a lot of forces at play in the larger culture, sometimes in church culture and around you that can devalue sex, can shame it, or can be exploitative around it. And you know, depending on the age of your child, that you're giving them a message around what the messages are that are out there and around them and how to navigate them. Right. And I, I teach a whole course on this, so I really break it all down. But I think, you know, uh, helping you, uh, helping your children to um, be able to see and even understand the messages that are being given around sexuality and the ways that they are misleading, right? So, you know, what I think I would say around, you know, I think it's valuable to sit with your kids when you see something on television, and this doesn't have to be R-rated by any means, it can be just a commercial for that matter, uh, to see the messages that are being given around sexuality and to give your thoughts about them or to ask your kids their opinion about them or what they think the person that's trying to sell that product is trying, to, what message they're giving and how they're using sexuality to give it, for example, or the kinds of messages that are portrayed in magazines around who are the kind of attractive people or who are the people that are worthy of sexual desire. Just helping our kids to digest and even make sense of those messages and then to offer healthier ones which is, you know, it's not just beautiful people that get to be sexual. We all are sexual. It's a part of being human. It's a good part of being human. And, you know, and so the media will give you that idea. 
or that you use your sexuality to get someone to love you or accept you. That it, that's a message that's out there. It's not a good message. It's not a helpful message, you know. And so just digesting them and, and helping them make sense of them. I think around pornography, I guess what I would say is that the more heavy-handed we are around these things, the more we create a monster. And, you know, having kids that are curious and doing what would be considered normal developmental things at age 12 and 13, like seeking out or being curious about sexually explicit material, does not make them sex addicts, does not make them unworthy, and does not make them need 12-step programs. It just means they're human. And the more we shame this, the more we create the kind of anxiety that creates compulsiveness around this. And it's just really tragic for me when I see well-intentioned parents and leaders doing this. The message is, of course, you're going to see these materials. And of course, they're going to turn you on or make you interested or curious. That just makes you human, not bad. And uh, it would actually be probably a problem if you felt nothing around any of these things. So there's nothing wrong with the fact that you find sexually explicit materials interesting. You know, I myself would look at Sears catalogs, you know, you could like see the bras and, you know, you just start to think, oh my gosh, you know, you could see a nipple there. I think you <laughs> and you know, <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that I, I think is normal behavior. At least I think I was normal. <laughs> okay. And, um, or I sometimes have told the story that my father had a, a book on his upper bookshelf called The Naked Communist, and I scaled that bookshelf to get it, and, you know, there were no pictures in it. <laughs> very disappointing. Um, very disappointing. I really wanted to see a naked communist. But anyway, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so it's just normal to be curious. What I would say to my children is that that's not the problem. It isn't a problem. But what you want to do is to engage around your emerging sexuality in a way that creates a deeper ability to really love someone deeply down the road through your sexuality. And so probably looking at porn a lot or you know, making any habit of looking at porn is not going to teach you about healthy sexuality. It's not going to teach you about healthy self-regulation, like learning how to manage emotions and manage relationships in the real world. And so just like spending too much time on Facebook or any or video games or anything else for that matter, it's anything like that that's immoderate or is teaching you unhealthy ideas is not gonna help you create that goal of being someone capable of loving intimate sexuality. And so it's not so much that these things are, are so off the rails horrible, it's just that they are can be a hindrance and they're not gonna help you achieve that deeper goal. And so moderation and good judgment are really important, but to also be kind to yourself as you navigate this challenging period of your emerging sexuality, as you're developing your interest in other people, your, your sexual interest in other people, and developing into adulthood. It's not an easy time. And having compassion towards yourself and others for the imperfection of it all is really, really valuable to be someone who's really capable of bringing your imperfect selves into a loving, open relationship, intimate relationship. So again, what are your thoughts, either of you? So it seems like uh, 
one, it can't, it has to be genuine when you talk to your kids and you try and talk positively about sexuality. Yes. You can't yes. have a frigid demeanor and say, sex is a really good thing that I'm comfortable yes. with and <laughs> you will yes. be too one day. Yes. But it has to be yes. genuine. So you have to like your kids seeing you show affection to your spouse things like yeah, that the more, I guess I would say it this way rather than oh crap you know how am I going to do this I can't I have to look genuine when I'm still trying to work through my own <laughs> feelings about this right? so not to put pressure to an excess but more to say the more you work out your own relationship to your own eroticism your own sexuality the more you're doing your kids a favor hmm. you're helping them to have less to work out and sometimes I've had clients that will say to their kids I you know, even when they've sort of learned to think about it differently, they've sometimes gone back and said, I know that I have given you messages that have been somewhat shaming because I also learned those ideas. And I'm sorry that I have handed those down to you because I think that they're wrong. And I'm still working through my own relationship to this part of being human. But I want you to know that I genuinely think that this can be a wonderful part of our lives, but maybe I am also working this out on some level within myself. Because mm. it's at least genuine then, right? Yeah, yeah. Sincere, and it allows your child to track that you're giving them in some ways permission to work this out better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, my own mom said to me at one point, like, I wish I could have offered better to you than I was able to at the time. And I'm grateful for what you've been working out and for what you've been able to offer to others. It's a kind of a message of I support you coming to a healthy understanding of your sexuality, even though I have my own work to do as well. Uh, something that I've thought about is, you know, I have kids between the ages of uh, four and ten or so. And mm -hmm. <clears throat> so it's something that I dread down the road because we haven't got to that hurdle yet. But... Mm -hmm. It does put me in a, a framework that I can work from, I think. So yeah, I think that's great. helpful. I think I would be interested in doing a podcast next time maybe on on sexual abuse and and its impact on relationships. And, and so if people want to submit questions about that, um, I would welcome it. Okay. Yeah, that's a heavy topic, but it's I don't know that we've really addressed it ever with the questions that we've had there's been like hints not directly of it. yeah it's been like maybe part of someone's question but mm -hmm. not yes. so directly That's right. okay so let's do that That's right so uh it'll probably be another month or two before we record and release another podcast so between yeah now when you're hearing this and then uh any listeners who have those kinds of questions um please email them in yeah, that'd be great. All right. So those were, I think that was a pretty good uh, discussion on eroticism and something we can get more comfortable with and uh, maybe tame a little bit through getting more comfortable with it. And uh, thanks, Jennifer and Laurel, for coming on and doing the podcast. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Thank you.